0: Uh, going on 14 years, and uh, we are here at Genesis chapter 3, and uh, in our sermon series, so I encourage you to use that Red Pew Bible, Genesis chapter 3, very first book of the Bible, and uh, Genesis chapter 3, large numbers are the chapters, small numbers are the verses, and uh, if you're a guest, or you're just kind of tracking with us, let me kind of do a little bit of review for you. You could kind of put a banner over Genesis 2 through 3. Genesis 2 through 3 could be from paradise designed to paradise destroyed. You could say it could be from rest to ruin. Genesis 2, God created for us to enter into His rest. Chapter 3, the descent into our ruin. It's an immense tragedy that speaks with kind of incredible applicability to our present condition. And it's all in contrast to what we have given ourselves to for weeks in this introduction. Remember, Genesis 1 was organized that God created the heavens and the earth, and He completed it in six days. As we saw, He kind of punctuated the seventh day with a word of blessing and an entrance into His rest. That's what Genesis 1 was all about. Now, by way of contrast, look at Genesis chapters 2 through 4. Mankind will produce 6 generations of Adam punctuated with a 7th by the man named Lemek who will not bless who will not enter into rest but who will ask for 77-fold revenge Look at Genesis chapter 4 verse 24 Genesis 4 verse 24 if Cain's revenge is sevenfold then Lemek's is 77 fold. He is the seventh generation. We can take a look there at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. The second generation, Adam and Eve, they bore Cain. Slide down to verse 17. The third generation, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. 18. Enoch was born Ired, fourth generation. Ired fathered Mahuhahel, the fifth generation. Then he followed Methushahel who is fathered by Lamech, the seventh generation. We see the way the story is moving. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world in six days, punctuating it with the seventh of blessing and rest. Man, in contrast, creates six generations and the seventh produces 77-fold revenge. How do we get there? How do we go from the wonder of the world in which we ended last week with man and woman being brought together in a perfect relationship, naked and unashamed, to this descent into the pit of guilt and estrangement? Look at the concluding verse of our section this morning Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. By the time the sermon ends today, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What a radical contrast. All of a sudden you begin to sense that Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7 are the verses that are moving us from rest to ruin. Ruin. It's the the descent of every human soul and our present condition. We have moved from God creating to be celebrated by all people to our first parents, Adam and Eve, subverting God's Word, casting us into catastrophic ruin if it would not be for God's Son to come and rescue us from ruin back into His rest. Let's go ahead and read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 and get an overview of what we'll be covering this morning. Would you hear God's word? Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden." and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonders from your word this morning. We pray that our teaching and preaching would not be in demonstration of man's wisdom or persuasive power, but that we would trust in Your Word to not return to us void, and that it would accomplish its work. We ask that You would seal these truths into our heart, and that we'd be obedient to them. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Whenever I read this passage, kind of a flashback comes into my mind of conversations that I've had with people. And all of these conversations characteristically begin with words that make my heart sink. They begin with words like this I don't know how. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what came over me. These are words of someone who has fallen. The sad thing about our lives is that we come to ask for help when it's too late. The temptation is already in the past. Now they are struggling with the consequences of their actions. The scales have fallen from their eyes and now their eyes are opened. They didn't know what they were getting into at first, but now they know they have been deceived. And oh, how much as a faith family... We need to learn how to handle and overcome temptation. What we have here in Genesis 3, 1 through 7 are the strategies that Satan uses to bring us from rest to ruin. Here are lessons for every Christian, young and old. In fact, the younger, the better. Because if we do not stand against Satan's schemes, we will become rivals with God forfeiting our relationship to God. So here's the takeaway. To avoid ruin in this life and the next, stand against the strategies of Satan. To avoid ruin in this life and the next, stand against the strategies of Satan. We will be able to stand against the devil's schemes when we look through this text and ask two really simple questions. How did it come about? And what are we to come away with? Let's look at the text through the lens of how did this take place, and what are we to take away? Answering those questions will help us stand against the strategies of Satan. So, by the end of this message, I pray that you will know how to, or how temptation works, and how temptation is overcome. Right? Temptation works, and how temptation is overcome, so that you can stand in relationship with God and avoid the ruin. Of Satan's schemes. How did it take place? I want to say that our descent into humanity's ruin occurs really in three simple movements. The first movement in Genesis 3 is a question about God's Word that gives way to an accusation against God's character, that gives way to a capturing of our hearts. That's the movement of temptation. We could say that these are the three strategies Satan uses, not just for our first parents, but even for us. So how does Satan attack? How does temptation work? First, a question about God's Word. First, a question about God's Word. Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafted than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? With that verse, we are introduced to a serpent. We are told something of his character, that he is crafty. But we really don't get this long prologue of who this serpent is. The rest of the Bible is going to have to tell us who this serpent is. And by the time you get to Revelation 12, 9, you realize that this serpent is Satan. But for now, all we get is a quick introduction and a direct movement to the question, did God actually say? It's a question about God's Word. It's the first question we have in the Bible. Did God actually say? Let's just sit on that for a moment. This is how the ruin of humanity comes about. This is the first movement. Who would have thought that a simple question could lead to the ruin of the human race? Satan's strategy of temptation begins innocently enough. Picture it. Just like our faith family, what we say every week. Adam and Eve are in a one-to-one Bible reading discipleship relationship. And they've left the chair open to invite somebody else in so they could disciple them. And that empty chair, well, it's been filled. And now they have a small group. And the small group gathers. And the question on the table is... What do we know about God's Word? It seems innocent. It seems ordinary. In fact, it seems like a conversation of the most exciting things. It is a conversation we hope you have every week. What does God's Word say? But a closer look reveals that all is not right. The narrator weaves into the story here the nature of the serpent and highlights that he is crafty. If you actually look at the words itself, the question is actually a distortion of what God has said. Let me read it to you again. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The devil exaggerates. And you should hear this question with that incredulous kind of tone. Can you really believe that God would say that? He said you couldn't eat of the trees in your own garden? You're kidding. The devil smuggles in that assumption that not only do we have the ability, but that we have the right to question God's word. Now, to know what God actually said, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 to learn what God has said. Genesis 2, 15-17 says this, The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God did not restrict them from every tree. They had access to every tree save one. This question of God's word is a distortion. Not only does Satan misrepresent what God has said, he actually wants to smuggle in this thought that God is overly and unreasonably restrictive. You might say temptation begins like this Temptation doesn't begin in your actions when you disobey God's commands. Temptation, it really begins in your attitudes when you begin to resent God's commands. Did you catch the difference? To stand against Satan's schemes, you need to know that Satan's first step is to arouse an attitude of resentment. How hard a life God has given me. What a severe God not to give me every tree in the garden. All it takes, faith family, for you to go from rest to ruin is to feel sorry for yourself. That's the first step. An attitude of self-pity is where it starts. Look at what Eve does with this. She launches into a correction on the restriction. The woman says here in chapter 3, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Great. So far, so good. (laughs) But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. There's the addition. She has an exaggeration of her own, just like Satan, right? She took away the every from God's provision. And then she added, either shall you touch it to God's prohibition. In doing so, she is beginning to exaggerate the severity of God. No longer every tree, and now we can't even touch it. Satan's strategy for your ruin is so subtle. He doesn't ask her to do anything but lose perspective. If she had the right perspective, that's what she should have said. Think about it. If you were Adam and Eve and you had the right perspective, she would look at that serpent and say, Are you out of your mind? Look around. This is Eden. This is the Garden of Delight. God has made everything in it, and it is very good, and He even made me. He alone gets to decide what is best. You want me to question the purity of His motives? You want me to doubt His character? What possible good could come from a creature defying their Creator? But instead, she loses the perspective of gratitude she should have had for her creator. How does Satan attack for your ruin? A deceptive question to make you lose perspective. It's the first question we have in the Bible, and guess what? It's the first time in the Bible that we need a sermon. That's right. It's the first time we need someone to stand up against Satan's strategies and actually articulate what God has said. And we know that Adam was there before Eve, and that he received the word from the Lord. And we also know that Adam is there with her the entire time. Although Satan is talking to Eve, all of the verbs in Genesis chapter 3 are in that second person plural. He's not off running around. Verse 6 will tell us that he was there with her. Here he is, and we are convinced that he should stand and speak to save them from ruin and to enter into God's permanent rest. But what do we do? We get the second movement of Satan's schemes to bring us from rest to ruin. Look at verse 4. The serpent is full-throated now. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He is in opposition to her. He is no longer asking her a question. He goes on in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is an accusation against the very character of God. It's interesting to see that it is no longer an interrogative. It's an accusation. It's no longer a question It is a direct word of rebellion. This is how we go from rest to ruin. The road to ruin always travels along the road of rebellion. He is now advocating for Adam and Eve to embrace His Word over God's Word. Notice what this text has. The first thing that he dismisses is the threat of judgment. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The first doctrine to be denied in the Bible is the final judgment. Does God hold us accountable for not living underneath His Word? Well, the voice of the serpent will tell you this. There's no such thing as a final judgment. God who created you, who gave you life, certainly wants you to be fulfilled. He's not going to judge you. He's loving and kind. Your very life is a consequence of His love. Therefore, live in accordance with what you love. Reach your potential. There it is. Another smooth, subtle strategy of Satan for your ruin. In essence, it's a diatribe against the goodness of God. Not only was he saying that God is lying to her, he is saying that God is withholding from you. How could he be good and keep this from you? He just doesn't want you to be like him. Satan suggests that Adam and Eve, if they live under God's word, would not reach their full human potential. It is an accusation against God's goodness. Here is Satan's big lie. God in his rules, he's trying to keep you down. But if you follow me and you listen to my words, you're going to be living in rooms with some higher ceilings. You're going to be able to come to fully actualize yourself. You will reach your full human potential. You'll become so much more. Hey, here's your path forward. You'll be like God. You'll be the complete person that you deem yourself to be. That's the premise. That you and I will reach our full human potential as we move forward in this world, as long as there are no restrictions. If there's any prohibitions, they will always hinder you in every single way. Satan is lying to them and telling them this. Obedience is limiting. Disobedience is liberating. Here's the choice, Faith Family. You can belong to God and be under His Word, or you can be God and do whatever you want to do. The way the Word of the serpent is working on the minds of our first parents to take us from rest to ruin, how does temptation work? Well, I think the descent's pretty clear. First, it comes in the form of a question. Then it comes with an accusation that God is not that good. And look at verse 6. It has time to capture their hearts. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate a question, an accusation. Now it sits on her mind and she begins to view the tree and it begins to look very different. It has all been moving towards this. She can now see what her life would be in distinction from living under God's Word. You, can, you know the feeling, right? Her heart is entranced. Her mind is consumed with anticipation. She can hardly wait. Her face is flushed with excitement. Verse 6 is written to slow this down so that we can actually understand how temptation works. Isn't God good? Notice all the commas in verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, pause. And then it was a delight to the eyes, Pause. And then it was the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Pause. She took of its fruit and ate. Pause. And then she gives them to her husband who was with her. Pause. And he ate. The writer of Genesis is slowing this down frame by frame to show you how temptation works and how it begins to sit on the human mind with no lure that at this moment is irretrievable. She can no longer see anything about the tree that is distasteful or dangerous. All she can see is what she must have. She cannot see anything harm. It looks good. Feels good. And here it is. It feels right. The bait's set. The hook's hidden. Her heart's been captured. And we've all been there. In your bulletin, there's a quote from Bonhoeffer. It's a longer quote. It's at the bottom of the page of the sermon notes. I wanted to read that to you. Bonhoeffer illustrates his own experience. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all of our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He, he loses all reality, and our only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. What's interesting about this movement of how temptation works is that we go from rest to ruin with the question, Followed by an accusation, all culminating in a revolution. It is a revolution in which we put ourselves in the place of God. We get to decide for ourselves what is good and evil. And Satan's masterpiece of lies is now complete. Satan says to us, You don't need God to understand this world, you can be the final arbiter of your truth. Friends, the reason you and I do not have the life we've longed for, the reason that you and I have a life of ruin as opposed to a life of rest, is because we put ourselves in the place of God. Consider how this works practically. We hold grudges with one another. Deeming ourselves to be sufficient to determine who does and does not deserve forgiveness. playing God. We're eaten up with anxiety over what is happening in our lives, the lives of our loved ones, because we're not sure God is doing the right thing at the right time. And we've made ourselves God. In all these ways and more, we put ourselves in the place of God, determining for ourselves what is good and evil. And faith family, you can't have it both ways. You can either belong to God and be under His Word, or you can be God. Adam and Eve have gone from rest to ruin all because they did not know how temptation works. They were deceived by Satan's schemes. Because they were not aware how temptation works, they relinquished their relationship with God, and now at the end, they have set themselves up as rivals against God. This is what the scriptures are teaching us from this text. Now, why go over this in such detail? Because our ability to withstand temptation depends on our ability to recognize the strategies of Satan. We want to see what is actually happening to us. And here's the truth you don't have the ability in the middle and in the midst of temptation to stop and say, I wonder what's happening to me. It's too late then. And so what we're doing is that we are building into our thinking now how temptation works so that later we can overcome temptation. If the answer to the question of how did this take place, now I want to turn to what are we to take away? I want to move from how did our ruin take place to how can we be rescued from temptation. And I want to talk to two kinds of listeners this morning of how temptation is overcome. First, I want to say something to those of you that are not yet Christians. There is something for you from here to take away. We want to acknowledge that as it was with our first parents, Adam and Eve, so it is with us. I have think I've been explaining something to you that is not really foreign to you. The Bible says that all have sinned and we've done it of our own accord. You might like to think that you've mastered everything. But we all are quite aware that there are moments when we have been mastered. Something can hold us fast in our anger, in our anxiety, just as desire held them fast. We are sinners. There it is in verse 7. The eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What is going on there? Their eyes are opened. Your eyes are opened to the fact that you are no longer living under God's Word, but you are living according to your own Word. And that internal knowing that you are not in submission to God, but that you are your own God, has some external sowing. You begin to experience, right, the ruin that everything is not right with you. I think you know you're not living under God's Word, and then you sow it, and you go, yes, I see it. But we would prefer that you not see it, which is why I cover it up and why you cover it up. We don't want you to see what we experientially know. I'm just indicating to you, those of you that are here that are not Christians, this text will teach you that you are a sinner and this text will teach you why things are the way they are. And that is the first step home. Because there is a Savior who can advocate for your sin. Matthew chapter 4, it's a long ways down the line in our Bible, but there comes a man who is named Jesus. And when he arrives on the scene, he is not placed in a garden. No, he is driven into a wilderness. When he comes, he is not set a feast before him, but we find him at the end of a 40-day fast. He does not have ample supply. No, he is nearing starvation. He does not have a companion of a wife next to him. He is all alone, and the Bible says he is tempted by Satan. With the same tactics that Satan used against Adam and Eve, he comes to Jesus, and he gets him, or attempts to get him, to doubt God's goodness, lose perspective, and distrust God's Word. And three times Jesus answers with God's Word. Not in a restrictive way, not in an additive way, not in a rebellious word. No, Jesus simply holds the line on God's Word. He looks at Satan and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, finally, is our representative in complete obedience. He withstood the schemes of Satan. In Adam and Eve, we learned our tragic understanding that we are all sinners before God. But it's not the end of the story. In Jesus, He comes and fulfills God's Word, and He does it for all of us. My non-Christian friend, how is temptation overcome for you? First... You today can move from ruin to rescue by looking to Jesus. And you look to Christ and you say, please, you do the covering for my sins that my own life can't do. If You do not know what that means? Go and ask the person that brought you to church this morning. They would love to be your dearest friend and explain how you don't need fig leaves to cover you, that you can be covered with the blood of Christ. If you came here and you risk coming without a friend, then all of us here would love to be your friend and explain to you more how Christ can be your perfect covering. Last, a word for Christians. Hey family, what did you take away from this? How is temptation overcome? Got three quick takeaways. If I say three, it might mean you might write them down. Here they are, three. First, be intimately familiar with Satan's schemes. Be intimately familiar with Satan's schemes. Hey, in the next couple of minutes, could you do me a favor? Locate an area of temptation in your life. Do you have a temptation that's nipping at your conscience right now? There is always a sequence to Satan's seduction. Temptation begins with a deception, followed by an attraction, which settles into a preoccupation and it ends in your destruction. Deception, attraction, preoccupation, destruction. To know what is happening is actually half the battle. So let's see what is happening as God has slowed down for us frame by frame this picture of how temptation works. Because if the goal of temptation is your deception, that's how it has to start, then we need to be familiar with Satan's schemes. Second, learn how to be absolutely convinced of the unchanging goodness of God. Be absolutely convinced of the unchanging goodness of God. Why? Because it seems that the devil's second movement is to dislodge in your heart any belief that God is good all the time, and that all the time, God is good. He just wants to move that out of the way. That is the focus of temptation in the garden. Has God put you in this garden and forbidden all of these trees for you to eat? She lost sight of the fact that God is good. Let me show you how this works in overcoming temptation. Let's consider anxiety. Where are you, anxious? Where you live, work, play? When you are anxious, the temptation is to believe what? God's not good. He's ignorant of my needs. How does Jesus counsel us to overcome this temptation? Be unchanging, convinced in God's goodness. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. They can't even provide food for themselves. And yet your heavenly Father, if he takes care of birds, will he not take care of you? What's the antidote? Goodness. This week, worried about my ministry being useless, empty. What's the deception? It's all up to me. It's a big week, leaving on sabbatical for three months. How do I overcome the anxiety of leaving? God's goodness. Isaiah 55:11. So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. When I have anxiety that I'm not up for the task, God says, My grace is sufficient for you. Because when you are weak, I am strong. Consider anxiety's cousin impatience. Impatience, it doubts God's wisdom. God's timing isn't there. It doubts God's goodness and his guidance. Where do you see impatience in your life? Locate where you whine. Locate where you complain. Locate where you murmur. What's happening? There's a detour. There's a delay. There is some opposition to what you want, and you have lost sight that God is very capable of bringing everything he wants to happen and it is for your good and his glory. In our impatience, we have forgotten that God can turn every barrier into a blessing. How do you overcome that? You remember the story of Joseph. Every detour, every delay that would tempt him to give into impatience. What does he say at the end? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Be unchangingly convinced of the goodness of God how about bitterness what's the temptation in bitterness I'm going to turn away from being satisfied in God's goodness and I'm going to be satisfied in revenge hey family if you are holding a grudge you are doubting the goodness of the judge. Overcoming bitterness by being absolutely convinced that God is good because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Three examples of how God's goodness will help you overcome temptation. Last point, fight from victory as you fight for victory. Fight from victory as you fight for victory. In Christ, church, look at me. You have the transforming power of the new birth. You don't just have pardon from sin. You have power over sin. Let me remind you of who you are. God has declared you, church, as Christ's followers, not guilty. You have been decisively adopted. You've been born again. You've been given a new heart with new inclinations. Crucified buried, raised, seated with Christ. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you have the ongoing intercession of Christ and His Spirit. Would you fight this week as victors, knowing that He who is in you is stronger than he that is in the world? And Satan loves to entice people to travel along the road to rebellion, waving goodbye to rest and saying hello to ruin. Are you headed to ruin because of your rebellion? Has Satan's strategies convinced you that sin looks normal and righteousness looks strange? Are you about to take and eat? You must be careful, sober, watchful. James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do you know how he works? Do you know what he wants? Faith family, because of God's son, you are not at the mercy of Satan's schemes. Look to Christ in high resolution faith for the rescue. He can give you something better than forbidden fruit. You know, in the upper room, I don't think it was missing the disciples. In the upper room, he told his disciples, I give you my body and my blood. Take and eat. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. All I have is Christ.